Welcome to church, my friends. That is right. The Olympics are here. And hey, during this time of worship, I want you to pretend that you're belting out the national anthem after America just won its 50th gold medal and you are fired up. Let's get into a sweet time of worship. Take it away, band.
Hello, church. Thank you so much, worship team. Man, that was good. It is Olympics time. I love the Olympics. Man, how weird were those opening ceremonies on Friday night? 
like super, super weird. It's just different during COVID. You know what I mean? Truth be told, it's Thursday right now. So I'm just guessing that the opening ceremonies are going to be weird. I'm just guessing. Just let's see if I'm right. Hey, so my name is Josh. I have a couple of announcements for you today. There's actually a good amount to get through. So first of all, if there's anything that we can be praying for you for this week, we would love to do that. Genuinely, please text any prayer request to 97,000, and we'd love to pray for those. Okay, things going on here in the next few weeks. This Monday night, we have our women's courtyard gathering. Come and check that out for a sweet, casual time, hanging out with the ladies and spending some time with the Lord. Awana. We are already talking about Awana here starting in September, and registration is opening up here on August 1st. So go ahead and get registered for that. Uh, we'd love to have you out for Awana this uh, fall and school year. A couple other things with that is, man, we're in need of some volunteers. It takes a whole lot of volunteers to make Awana happen. So if you're interested in coming and hanging out with some little kiddos on Tuesday nights, listening to verses, hanging out with them, there's lots of different roles, lots of different things. We would love you to think through if you're interested in coming and being a part of that program. That would be awesome. Life Group Sunday. So we've noticed, we've gotten, we've heard, gotten feedback. We've heard that there are a number of families, couples, singles in the church that are interested in getting plugged into some life groups. So we're going to be launching some new life groups here in the fall. And our best way to do that is to have you come to our Life Group Sunday. That's on Sunday, August 8th, coming up in two weeks. And in between services, and then after second service. So after each service, we're going to meet in the well for just a really brief time, kind of talking through life groups and hopefully hopefully launching uh, some new life groups out of that. So mark your calendars, sticking around just for a little bit after each service so that we can get plugged in to a life group. That would be great. Our ABF barbecue hoedown and camp out is coming up in three weeks on August 14th. It's going to be a jam-packed, awesome day starting at 4 p.m. There's going to be dinner, a barbecue dinner at 5 p.m. There's going to be some hoedown activities. I don't even know everything that's going on there, but a ton of fun. And then culminating for those that want to in a camp out overnight. So lots of lots of fun going on that day. It's for everybody. If you don't want to sleep over, that's all right. Come and hang out, grab some food, and hang out with the church body. It's going to be a great day. Again, that's on August 14th. Then, gentlemen, the following weekend on August 20th and 21st, we are having our men's retreat down at the Salvation Army Camp, and that is one of the best times for men in our church to get together, to kind of put other things aside, to be together, hang out, get to know each other better. But more importantly, man, spending like quality time with the Lord and just having that recharge, that refresh, it is so, so important in the life uh, of a man. It's so important in the life of our church for our men to be getting together and doing this. So I would encourage you, please sign up. Registration is open online. Go ahead and get signed up for that. That's August 20th and 21st couple other reminders. Go ahead and follow us on social media. It's fun to see the happenings going on here at the church. And thank you so much for your continued giving. You can give online or mail in a check. Man, we are so thankful to be going through the series, Misquoted and Misunderstood. And Pastor Scott is going to continue on that series with another sweet message. So here is Pastor Scott. 
Well, thanks, Pastor Josh, and uh, so thankful for Josh and Chris and John just helping uh, fill in in the last uh, couple weeks for a chance for myself and my family to get away and be refreshed. We had a, a wonderful time on the East Coast, and so uh, grateful for that. I, I was a little confused, though, last week watching that just a few weeks away, and they're already introducing special effects in the video, all kinds of stuff. And so we're going to bring it back in a little bit, <laughs> hopefully, uh, here today. Well, continuing in our series, uh, hopefully you've been blessed like I have through this series that's uh, really this, this misquoted and misunderstood, I think is an important series because I think it can be uh, quite dangerous uh, to misuse scripture and to misunderstand it. And so uh, a few of the passages that we've hit on hopefully have uh, really helped correct some of our thinking, even within the church, maybe thinking that we didn't even realize that we had. That's something that I experienced with this week's text. I don't know if you've been in these situations before where you're interacting with somebody that's just going through a miserable experience and you're kind of in your mind, you're reeling for words to say because you're not quite sure exactly what's the right amount of uh, sympathy, what kind of words of counsel, like where to, how to respond uh, to somebody's uh, heartache. I want to use maybe an example that you've had before of interacting with somebody that's lost a, a, a job after a lot of years, a real tough hit to their, their finances and then creating a lot of uncertainty to their future. And you find yourself trying to think through and reeling what to say and saying something to the effect of, well, don't worry because I'm sure there's something better that will come along. And that's right about the point where we usually quote today's verse. All things work together for good. So what have we actually told the person? Well, we feel good about it because they've got some degree of comfort and we feel like, hey, well, I actually was able to use one of my Awana verses finally in real life. And so we're feeling pretty good about that statement, but I wonder if what we're saying is accurate. Is it actually true? What if, here, let me just have you stretch your thinking with this. What if their best job is now in the rear view mirror? What if God now has them on a kingdom assignment with a terrible boss, a very short-term assignment that's going to be really pretty miserable? Or is that really a, a word of counsel that you can say things are going to get better? What if they're moving out of their very last season of abundance and moving towards a season of need that Paul talked about last week in Philippians 4? So the comfort that you offered to them saying that things would get better really is inaccurate. It's not accurate. It's a, a promise, but is it an accurate promise? So many Christians, I would suggest, are really become disillusioned because they think they have this mindset that things are always going to be improving. But what if better isn't actually the promise in Romans 8, 28? 
This is one often less misquoted, but more often misunderstood. And so I'm looking forward to wrestling through this uh, verse with you guys uh, over the next stretch of time now. I know in my own personal study, this has been good for me to think through and pray through and make sure my understanding of this is rooted in what God's word actually teaches. So let me just pray briefly before we start to explore this verse and the surrounding verses around it. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to be together and this chance to wrestle through your word and make sure that the things that we're clinging to actually are reality, that they represent your words, that we go back and see the context and the way they're explained and the words surrounding them and make sure that we have an appropriate grasp of what you want to convey to us. Make sure that our understanding of your promises are crystal clear so we're not clinging to something inappropriately. God, we now turn over this time to you. We ask that you'd be speaking to each of us. We invite your Holy Spirit to just move through this time in your word. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, let me give you a, a little bit of context here. We've done in the past a study in the book of Romans, uh, just, a, uh, just a wonderful book. Basically, Paul writing to a variety of home churches throughout Rome, a group of mostly Gentile Christians that are in the thick of it as it relates to persecution. They're going through a ton of of stuff right now. And so he's trying, as he writes the book of Romans, to help them clarify expectations. Hey, if you're going to follow Jesus, this is what you should expect. So a little earlier in chapter 8, he even explains to them, he says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, the Bible does not promise that Christians will have more pleasant circumstances in this life than non-Christians. The Bible on the exact opposite, the Bible more often points to the fact that we're going to have trial and tribulation. So it doesn't promise a, a, a better life, but it does promise a better life to come. So let's read through these verses and get it in context, we'll start in our actual verse, uh, Romans 8, 28 says this, we and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All right, we'll stop there first off, getting a chance to think about who he's promising something to. We're pretty clear that he's promising something to those of us who love God. We're clear elsewhere in scripture that how that love works, that love originates from him. We're told in scripture that he loved us first and he demonstrated that love on a cruel Roman cross, providing the opportunity to have our relationship with God restored because he paid the penalty on that cross that we deserve to pay. So his love is demonstrated to us. If we embrace that love, then he downloads that into us with a love for him in response to the love that he's demonstrated to us. So it starts with those of us that have responded to his call. It refers to a calling here, a response to his call. Then we can cling to the promise that follows. 
I want to pause just there for a moment before we continue in the text. I want to make sure that those of us that are listening along and are maybe following along in this series have asked themselves that question. Have you embraced Jesus' love? Has his pursuit to you resulted in you humbly coming before him, bending a knee and calling out to him for the forgiveness of your sin? Otherwise, these are promises that you're looking into, but not promises that you're going to experience. My hope and prayer is that even in these moments, while you're watching this video, you might choose to respond to his call to your life, his invitation to embrace his finished work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. So that's our audience, those who have embraced that. And it says really clear what the promise is. We can break it down. It says, all things, it says, all things work together for good. I think it's important for us to first address the all things, because basically that is encapsulating everything that we get bombarded with in the expanse of our days, whether it's the good or the bad. And trust me, if you've lived long enough, you understand that you get a little bit of both. You, you get hit pretty hard with some miserable stuff. We don't get to skip anything. He's not promising that we escape hardship here. It's important for us to understand. In fact, a little bit later in verse 35, he describes what some of those things are. He says, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. In other words, he's trying to create a, a, a summary or a list to explain to us that, man, we get it all. We don't skip it. Sometimes we have this mindset that, man, if you're following Jesus, man, you should be expected that you're going to miss out on, on trials and tribulation, but that's just not the case. I had to wrestle through that, and much of our church family had to wrestle through that through the loss of JJ in the past. I guess we're a couple years into that now. Just what a, a miserable experience that was. And I even found myself in that experience. And maybe you're like me with that, where you're just like, man, God, how could you allow that to happen to such a great couple, such a, a committed followers of Jesus Christ? How could that happen? But again, for Christians, we have to understand that we don't get to skip some of the heartache and pain, even the most miserable stuff as a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've collided with that yourself and asked yourself the exact, exact same questions. Man, why am I going through this? I thought I would skip some of this. I thought that I had a, a maybe in, in scripture, I hear people joking about this, a hedge of protection around me as a Christ follower. You're like, yeah, well, maybe there's an argument for protective angels, but it's not saying that we get to skip by any means the hardship. I always think about the story of Jim Elliott. Maybe you're familiar with that name. He was a missionary to the Aka Indians in Central America. I was reading a little bit this week about his story again as a refresher. It's a reminder that he was a graduate from Wheaton College, which was real close to uh, where Adrian and I used to live in Chicago. And as a graduate, he had experienced a, a couple different missions trips. And coming out of those missions trips, man, he had a heart for reaching lost people. That heart for reaching lost people moved him to partner with Wycliffe and go through training and getting equipped 
And he really felt especially compassionate for people that had never heard the gospel message. So he went on this adventure with a team of four other men to reach this unchurched Aka tribe. So reaching out to them, it was kind of a crazy situation as you read the details of it. You read the details and you see at first they were well received, but within days of first connection with this Aka Indian, everyone lost radio connection with Jim Elliott and his team. They later found the group of five of them with each of them with spears in their backs. What in the world? None of them survived their experience. It would force you to question it and wrestle through. What is it that you say to Elizabeth Elliot and their new baby girl? Things are going to get better? What? That doesn't seem to work in that context and that leaves so many Christ followers reeling because they're not quite sure what to do with that because they think, man, we're supposed to be protected and escape so much of it. But again, what if the promise of escaping all of these things isn't actually the promise? Where we so often think that we're going to skip these circumstances and that our circumstances will gradually improve or, well, I'm just hitting a rough patch right now. Sooner or later, it's going to clear up. But that's not what the gospel promises. It doesn't promise better life circumstances, but it does promise what we see here in the text, a good outcome, a good outcome. He works all things together for good, for good. The key word there is good. It can be tricky though with our understanding of even the word good. And our pride, so often we think we have a better understanding of what is actually good for us. When you look back and do a little bit of study on that word in scripture, it actually goes all the way back to the book of uh, Genesis. If you think about what was the tree that Adam and Eve partook of, they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So basically, in essence, what Adam and Eve did is they decided we're going to determine good and evil, right and wrong, rather than allowing God to play that role appropriately. So ever since that, we've had a lot of confusion over what is actually good in our life. The prophet Isaiah refers to those who call evil good and good evil. And basically we can get misdirected on that. We even see it present day in our culture in so many different arenas. I would say more often than complete confusion over what is good, I'd say more often we settle for lesser goods than what God actually has in mind here in our text. We settle for things like pleasure, comfort, or possessions. And there's nothing wrong, let's be clear here, there's nothing wrong with celebrating some of those things as they cross our path because the reason we can celebrate them is because they shouldn't be expected and they're definitely not guaranteed. They're not promised in any format. All of those things should be things that move us to gratitude, to worship. When we have something good cross our path, something as far as comfort or possession or pleasure, anything of that nature, you should say, wow, that was unexpected and not promised. Thank you, God. Thank you for my good health. Thank you for my amazing family. Thank you. There's so many things that you could go down the list that aren't included 
in these promises from God. It should escalate our worship as we are more and more sensitive to those. On this trip that we just had to Ocean City, one of the highlights of being in that area, because we've gone there for so many years, is there's so many different places that we like to get different treats. And one specific one, every single year that we go there, I've gone 45 out of 48 years of my life to Ocean City, New Jersey. One of the places we love to go is called Malin's Sticky Buns. And it has life-changing cinnamon rolls. Like they are game changers. These things are ridiculous. And uh, we take turns kind of as a family, kind of whoever gets up earliest. We usually get them uh, for breakfast a couple times over the vacation. And whoever gets up earliest might take a trip over there and pick up some uh, fresh, just warm dozen of these uh, sticky buns. They're thick and gooey and uh, goodness. Sorry if I'm making you hungry in the middle of this video. Uh, But anyway... For that, I remember just even on this trip, a time that I'm just sitting there with one of these sticky buns and just thinking to myself, man, God, you are so good. Like it was weird. It was weird that a sticky bun actually moves you to worship. But honestly, when you actually start to see the good things in life that come across your path as something that wasn't deserved, something that wasn't expected and something that was never promised, it changes the gratitude meter within our life. But here in this context, those are not the things that he's referring to when he says that he's going to work it out for our good. That's that's selling ourselves short for what he describes and what he tells us is our ultimate good. And his ultimate good is attached to his purposes that we see in the verse to follow. We'll continue. Verse 29. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Again, he clarifies his audience here. Those he knew and chose, he had a desired outcome. And do you see what that desired outcome is there in the text? That we would be conformed to the image of, of his son. When you're looking for our primary good, defining what he decides is actually good for us, that is his definition of good. So when he's telling us that he's going to work out our circumstances for our good, the ultimate good is for us to be shaped more and more into his likeness. So sometimes we're confused and we're just like, man, where's my security? Where's my comfort? Where's my possessions? And he's like, yeah, I'm not concerned about that in your life. I'm concerned in you becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. You've maybe heard the expression before somebody's used where they say, don't waste this trial. Don't waste this trial. They say that because they realize that trials And the miserable stuff in our life are tools that are part of of God's uh, work shed and shaping us and molding us like the the perfect architect that's chipping away at something or sculptor that's adding pieces, taking away pieces and chipping away at things that can sometimes be painful, but definitely worth any level of discomfort to get you to the end result, which is his likeness. Sometimes when we listen to a sermon like this, we're just like, 
Oh, great. I get to become more like him. More. And that, that's really short-selling what God actually has in mind. We can not realize what a big deal it is to be made in the likeness of God. You're becoming who you're designed to be. Your original intent, the, instruct, the instruction manual, it's designed. You're actually fully living out his intent for your life when you become more and more like him? That is the question that each of us should be wrestling through when we're going through difficult circumstances. When we're saying, man, I can't believe I'm going through this, should be maybe better asked the question, man, in the middle of this, God, what are you wanting to do with me? How are you wanting to make me more into your likeness? Like a sculpture, this has always been the predetermined design that he has. He has in mind, like a sculpture says, I want him to end up like this. But here's the thing, when you're in the middle of it, sometimes you're like, this doesn't look like much of a sculpture. It looks kind of, looks kind of lame. If he's actually a, the great sculptor that we believe he is, then I'm not really liking how this is looking. Remember when I was in high school, I really enjoyed art classes. And actually, uh, my art teacher uh, wanted me to actually pursue kind of a career in art. I didn't uh, go that direction. But I remember uh, very clearly what would annoy me the most as an artist was as I was, I was most often drawing things. But as I, I was drawing something, drive me crazy when somebody would look over my shoulder and be like, huh, what's that? That's kind of, kind of kind of unclear on what it would be and I'm like, "Oh, you got to you got to wait till it's finished. Wait till the the artist is done with the final draft when he's actually added all the different pieces to the to the to the puzzle." Here's the idea here is the goal in all of this, the end goal is that we begin to look more and more like our father. Do you see that in the text there? Do you see this family relationship? He says, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So in the, that day and time, firstborn, that was always the person that would be elevated and have special privileges and um, be looked up to. Kind of the, the, the firstborn was really a, a, a big deal in that culture in that day and age. This is the idea here in the word usage is that Jesus was always intended to be preeminent amongst all of us. And then the one in which the others would replicate or would model themselves after Found it funny. I don't know if you've gotten a chance to learn anything ab about uh, George Foreman and his uh, family life. His actual full name is George Edward Foreman. He ended up having 12 kids. And of those 12 kids, he had five different sons. Found it interesting that he named each of the sons George Edward Foreman. All, all five of them had the exact same name. His intent was to kind of have all of them emulate and follow in his example and follow his life. I think that's the same exact idea here is brothers that all look just like their dad. God, that was always God's intent from the beginning that he would be preeminent and that one would be replicating the other, Jesus being the original. So for us, when we're trying to figure out, well, what is my good? What is that promise? That we'd be shaped more and more like him through all of life's circumstances, the good and the bad. 
continue with the last verse here, verse 30, as we look at the making sense out of all of this. So it's not, first off, bad things turn out for good. Second thing, our good may not be what we expect. And third thing is the best is yet to come. Take a look at verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, sometimes in church world, you can use words and they can start sounding really churchy. And you're like, what is he saying here? What, what's, what point is he trying to make there? Basically, Paul explains why he can be confident that God has our best interest in mind. The key words there, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Each of those is covering the full gamut of our lives, both past, present, and future, with the last one being this idea of being glorified. Glorified is what happens at the end game, when finally we're done with all of this shaping, all of this, uh, all of this molding, all the sculpting that God is doing in our lives, it'll be nice to be finally finished with that. At the end of our days, we're going to be glorified. In actuality, the best description of that is where it's the, the finished art project of the sculptor. What he's been working on, designing the perfect replica, he finally completes. What's interesting here is you notice the context that he uses that, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see there the tense in which that's used? He uses the present tense for something that hasn't happened yet. Sometimes you think through that, you're just like, why is he talking about us being glorified when we're a long way from that happening? The reason he uses it present tense is because the guarantee that is in, re in our existence. It's going to happen. It's as good as already done. So when we're wrestling through our circumstances, when we're trying to make sense out of our pain, the, we have to be reminded that the best is yet to come. On the other end of this, there's going to be a finished product that looks just like Jesus. Now the hope of heaven, and here's the important thing, the hope of heaven isn't meant to trivialize, the deny the present suffering that we're going through. In fact, just the opposite. Your soul is so great and suffering is so deep that nothing else could provide hope other than eternal glory. When you're going through miserable stuff, when you're going through a loss, when you're going through something in the uh, health-related and this is what we want to be pointing people to, not saying, well, things are going to get a lot better. I uh, so often try to avoid those conversations because we just don't know in this lifetime if they actually will get better. In fact, they may actually get worse for somebody. But at the end, when we breathe our final breath, we have this hope that it's going to be finished. It's going to be complete. We're going to be present with our Lord and made in his likeness. So while we wait for our eternal good, we need to be patient because it might not be today. It might not be next week, next month, or even next year. But we do know that we have that to look forward to. And sometimes God is kind enough 
to even show us in this present lifetime where, how it turns to good. We'll revisit for a second the Elliot story. Found it interesting that just right after he died, Elizabeth Elliot wasn't swayed by that. I'm sure she was miserable for an extended period of time at the loss of her husband, but it didn't compel her to run from God. It caused her to run towards God. In fact, she chose within two years of his death to pick up where his ministry left off. It's kind of a cool story where she ultimately ended up moving in and living amongst the Aka Indians and having the opportunity in gradual over time to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's said that the entire tribe embraced Jesus Christ as savior. I remember a number of years back being at a Stephen Curtis Chapman concert and he brought on tour with them one of the uh, adults, somebody that was at that point, because this happened a number of years back, he was quite old at that point, but brought one of the Aka Indians on this concert tour with them. And he got to tell the, the testimony of, of this woman coming to their tribe and introducing them to the, the, the savior that changed the trajectory of all of their families from that day forward. It's beautiful when you actually see how God is orchestrating all of this. Sometimes we get the pleasure and treat of experiencing and seeing firsthand, look, look how God took this miserable experience and turned it for good. Other times, somebody else might see it and tell the story generations to come. Either way, it's a trust exercise, realizing that God takes everything that happens to us and perfectly orchestrates it for his glory and our ultimate good, whether we understand it in this lifetime or not. I like how John Piper summarizes these verses, and I thought I'd close with this. It says, God is so supremely in charge of the world that all the things that happen to Christians are ordered in such a way that they serve our good. So the rugged hope of the believer is not that we will escape distress or peril or hunger or slaughter, but that almighty God will make every one of our agonies an instrument of his mercy to do good. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this reminder of what the actual promise we have in scripture is. Isn't the promise that things are gonna necessarily continue to get better or improve. That's not it. In this life behind enemy lines, we have to understand that often things continue to digress and break apart, but ultimately we have the hope that you're going to bring it all together, that in this process of going through hardship and pain, those of us that love you are going to be shaped more and more into your likeness and ultimately to be glorified, to look just like you. We thank you for this promise. I pray that this would be a hope that we cling to, even for those 
in our audience here today that are going through trials and trying to make sense of it even in these moments. I do call out and pray for the person that's maybe been teetering on what they want to do with the, with the gift of Jesus Christ, whether they want to accept or reject or what they're going to do with all of this. I pray that you'd continue to make yourself irresistible even in their hearts and minds this week. We pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. When the heart is under fire Another way when the walls are closing in And when I look at the space between Where I used to be and this reckoning I know I will never be alone There was another in the fire Standing next to me, there was another in the waters, holding back the seas. Should I ever need reminding of how I've been set free? There is a cross that bears the burden, where another died for me. There is another in the fire.
There is no other name but the name that is Jesus. He who was and still is and will be through it all. So come what may in the space between all the things unseen and this reckoning. I know I will never be Amen. Well, thank you, worship team. And remember that we do have a God that works out all things together for our good. And it's his definition of good, which is his likeness, which we all want to be moving towards. Anyway, we can serve you this week. Always feel free to reach out. Otherwise, God bless you. Have an amazing day.